The opening few words of the Bible leave us in no doubt as to who the hero of this book is going to be. In the beginning, God. God is the subject of life. God is foundational for all living. Whenever he gives an introduction to the book of Genesis, Eugene Peterson puts it like this. If we don't have a sense of the primacy of God, we'll never get it right. We'll never get life right, and we'll never get ourselves right. Not God at the margins, not God as an option, not God at the weekends. God at the center and in the circumference. God first and God last. God, God, God. These opening words of Genesis that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they've set the scene for everything that's going to follow. And focusing this time on the whole of the Old Testament, Philip Yancey writes, like a drumbeat that never stops. In the pages of the Old Testament, we hear the constant message that this world revolves around God and not around us. In the beginning, God Last week, if if you were here, you'll remember that we spent our time looking at what God did in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we learned together that science doesn't disprove Genesis chapter 1. The scientific account and the biblical account are very, very different. They're as different as an anatomist's diagram on the one hand and an artist's portrait. Each one of them is legitimate in its own right, and it's, it's actually foolish to pit the two against one another. As we looked into the biblical account of creation, we, we found a, a few answers, not so much about how creation happened. The, the questions the Bible seems to focus on answering are the who questions. God brought form to the chaos. God filled the emptiness of this world. God made everything in it. And what did he say about it? You'll remember he said that it was very good. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're going to pick up now with the biblical account in chapter 2 and verse 4, where Alma began to read. And you'll notice here that we haven't taken time to look at the first three verses of chapter 2. We're told there that after spending six days creating the earth, God rested. And God's rest here that becomes the basis for a day of rest that that God has encouraged his people to keep ever since. It's a massive topic in its own right, the the keeping of a day of rest or or Sabbath. And it's one that I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to deal with it here this morning. We'll get a chance maybe to pick up on that some other time. Well, let's look together then at chapter 2 and verse 4. And there's a significant focus here. From this point on, human beings take a center stage. We begin to learn about God, yes, but particularly about God in his dealings with human beings. You see, human beings are the pinnacle and the climax of God's creation, and you can see that in chapter one. There have been six days of creation. Those days are in a crescendo, and they reach their climax at the end of the sixth day when God makes human beings. If you look back with me to verse 26 of chapter one, you'll see that God said, let us make human beings in our likeness. 
Here we have, and we've talked about this before, we have the Trinitarian God saying, let us make human beings in our image. And this phrase, in our image, is never used of any other species other than humans. It sets human beings apart from all other creatures on the planet. Being made in God's image, it gives us both a unique relationship with God and a unique standing in the world in which we live. That's all very well, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? Well, if you began to read up on this, you'd realize that it's a very, very broad concept, and a lot of writers would say a lot of different things about it. And although it sounds a very strange concept to us, it's a very, very common idea in the world of the biblical writer. In, in the cultures of the day, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, people believed that if you made an image or if you made a statue of the God whom you worshipped, the presence of the God would be tangibly in that image or that statue. So that statue or image could act as a substitute for that God in the place wherever you set it. Now, in these cultures as well, kings often represented gods, and they ruled on behalf of the gods. So it was common for kings to be described as the image of God. Now, that's the language that the biblical writer uses when he talks about how God made us. Now, do you see what a wonderful dignity God has given to us collectively as human beings? We are made in the image of God. We have been made with something of God's stamp on us, collectively uh, as human beings. We've been made to serve as God's representatives in the place where we've been set, here on the earth. Now, if if you're a little bit dubious about whether I've got that right, let me try and, and show you. You can see that that's the case when we read on in verse 26 of chapter 1, because when God makes us in his image, he then tells us what that means. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. In effect, God takes human beings, he places us on the earth, and he says, there it is. I want you, made in my image, to look after all of this. I want you to be my representative rulers of this earth that I've created. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because this is so important. I want you, every one of you, not the person beside you, but you, to leave here this morning knowing that you're made in the image of God. Because if you don't know that, and if you don't understand that, you're going to think very wrong things about who you are. We live in a world where people are constantly complaining about young people in particularly, about people who have no respect for others and no respect for themselves. Is that any wonder, though, in the world that we're creating around us these days? Does it not strike you as ironic that we're busy teaching our our children that they're products of of some genetic accident, that they're descended 
from apes and chimpanzees, but that we then protest whenever they behave as though that were actually true, when they behave in in ways that don't seem quite human to us, that are almost animal-like. Our children need to be taught the truth, the truth that they were made in the image of God, to know him and to know his love. At the beginning of the third millennium, Britain has become a desperately lonely place. Society, it it seems to me, is more fragmented than ever, and even the basic units of relationship that we used to take for granted are disintegrating. Families, for example, aren't what they used to be. Children are growing up not knowing their parents, and it's breaking them. As I read in these early chapters of Genesis, it strikes me that all of us, whether we're in healthy families or not, we all need to be reintroduced to God. We're like cosmic orphans who have been separated from from our Father. We need to be reintroduced from the God who loves us. A lot of people in the world today don't know who they are, where they came from, and why they're here. And it's because they've lost this connection this connection with their Father God who made them in his image. Friends, it's so important that you understand that you're made in the image of God. Look with me at verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. It's a a lovely image here, really. The image is of God as a potter. He lifts a lump of clay and he he fashions or forms human beings from that. The picture is that God has been skillful and intentional. He's made us exactly as he would have us to be. You'll notice that in contrast with all the other animals, God breathes the breath of life into human beings doesn't mean natural breath because all the other animals, they have natural breath without this being said of them. This breath of life is a different way of saying something very similar to the image of God. Human beings, in contrast to everything else that's on the earth, we have the life of God within us. Once you understand this, it becomes a lot easier to understand a lot of the New Testament. There we read things that can sound quite strange to us if we don't understand this. We read that those who follow Jesus Christ, God promises to give the spirit of Jesus to those people. In John chapter 20, we see a wonderful passage that actually connects these two ideas for us. Jesus has risen from the dead and he's appeared to his disciples And we read something really astonishing in the light of what we've just read. We read, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I think what we have here in John chapter 20 is a a retelling of Genesis chapter 2. Jesus comes to his disciples, he breathes on them, And he says, there, the Spirit is back 
as it was always intended to be, the fullness of God's presence and God's spirit is now with you because you're my followers. Isn't that incredible? That, friends, is what God intends for each one of us, that we live lives full of his spirit and his presence. And God, through Jesus and through the spirit, longs to make that a reality for us today. It's not something of the past. We didn't read verses 8 to 14, so I'm going to take a couple of minutes just to talk very briefly about the setting of this astonishing drama. We're told here that God planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Now, the term garden here, it just refers to some enclosed and protected area, somewhere where plant life flourishes. And the word Eden has its Hebrew roots in a word meaning pleasure and delight. So what we have here is, is a garden that is in a place of, of pleasure and delight. It's a place that God has created for human beings to meet with him, to know his presence and to know his love, to enjoy the company of all the animal life and all the plant life. And it's, it's just delightful, as the word Eden says. In verse 10 there, we read about a river that flows from Eden, which waters the garden. Now, you'll know from geography that rivers always flow from high to low. So we can, the image here is of a river flowing from, from above, from a mountain. We're presented here with an image that recurs time and time again in the Bible. A heavenly river from above, from the throne of God bringing blessing to the peoples of the earth. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of this, but if you turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we won't take time to do this in detail now, you'll find a description of heaven, and you'll find there that the river is there, the river of life, bringing the blessing of God to God's people. You'll find also language like a, a description of a garden, because the, the picture at at Revelation is very similar to the picture here in Genesis chapter 2. The theme is of God being with his people and blessing them. And it's just a, a wonderful image of, of what God intends for us. Now, man is in this garden. Man and women are there together. What is it they're actually intended to do? Look with me at verse 15, and you'll see. God took the man, he put him in the garden to work it, and to take care of it. Now, I've, I've talked about this before, so I'll be careful of repeating myself. God created human beings to rule over the earth as his representatives and to care for this garden in which he's placed them. Now, it might surprise you. I must say it surprised me when, when it first dawned on me. It might surprise you to find Adam working before the fall, because sometimes I think that we imagine that work is a curse of the fall, and maybe that's how your work feels, especially on a Sunday evening, and you're getting ready to go back to work. But here we have a picture of a perfect world, and it's a world in which we work. The curse of the fall, which we'll come to look at when we look at chapter 3 together, is not the work in itself. Because work is and can be a good thing. 
The curse of the fall is that the work that God gave to Adam becomes a curse and not a blessing. It becomes a, a burden to him. If you imagine, if you imagine a, a great day at work where everything that you do seems to work out, where you have a great sense of fulfillment and, and purpose and meaning in your work because it's wonderfully creative and something great has come out of it, I imagine that that's the kind of work that Adam was enjoying in the garden before the fall. Now look with me at verse 18. We're going to pick up there in the last aspect of this chapter that I want to look at with you this morning. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. By the way, that not good is highly emphatic. It means it's, it's just entirely not good. It, it's not right for human beings to be alone. In God's eyes, it's never good that people should be alone. It's never, never was good and it never will be. Now, this, this verse here gives us another important reminder. And I don't know if any generation needs to hear this more than we do. We live in a, a very individualistic and privatized culture. And the message of, of God's word here is that that's not what we were made for. Um, we were made to be together and to share life with one another. An interesting thing, as we read on through the verses, we see that Adam, he, he exercises his duty of care for the earth. He seems to become familiar with all of the animals around him. But we read at the end of verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. He's Lord of all species of animals and birds, but he's still alone. He's alone because he has none of his own type with whom he can commune. Now, I want to, I want to clear something up here. In verse 20, we see a word helper. And some people have picked up on this word helper. And they've understood that to mean that the woman whom God would create is somehow innately subservient to man. Some people have used this as grounds for male chauvinism. Now, it might help you to, to realize how the Bible uses this word. This word helper is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 times it's used of God. God is in the role of helper. So it seems to me entirely inappropriate to see this helper as in some way a servant or a skivvy. This is a word that's used time and time again of God. It seems to me much better to understand that this, this helper is, gives help that is entirely indispensable. The man, if I can put it in my own words, would be entirely lost without the woman. That's what the verse here is saying. And I believe that's what God meant to the man in his gift of the woman. Here is the person who makes you complete. The person who is indispensable to you. Who gives you what no other animal or no plants or nothing else in this wonderful world can give you. In verses 21 and 22 we have a lovely a beautiful, intimate account of God creating the woman. And again, I need to say the same thing here that I said last week. Don't read this as a scientific account 
of how God brought women onto the earth. This isn't describing, I don't think, some surgical procedure. Surely the point of the narrative here is that when God made woman, he made her from the very same stuff as he made the man. These two are one. They're two different people, but made from one common source. Now, some of the commentators pick up on a a great significance of the rib being the body part that God used to create the woman. Matthew Henry, he points out that the woman is not made out of his head as though she should be the top over him. She's not made out of his feet as though she should be trampled upon by him, but she's made out of his side that she should be an equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. The biblical teaching is that God has given us each other as equals to protect one another and to know one another's love. Isn't that brilliant? God said it's not good that we should be alone. Now, if you read on here, Adam's clearly very excited and you can see that in verse 23 because he makes up the first poem in the Bible. In these early chapters of Genesis, you see poems springing up periodically. And in the narrative, they they work to show us a climax, uh, just a a summing up and a bringing together of everything that's gone before. So here we have the climax of all creation. God is with the man, and now he's introduced the woman. This man and this woman are entirely open to one another. The biblical writer draws our attention to that in the last verse of the chapter. They have a perfect relationship. And his way of telling us that these two are in perfect relationship is to say that they were both naked and they felt no shame. This isn't an erotic or a sexual thing that's being said here. It's talking about their relationship. And it's saying there's absolutely nothing between these two. They entirely trust one another. They're, They're vulnerable before one another and they're entirely open with each other. Friends, just as I conclude, isn't this just a a stunning picture in Genesis chapter 2? The fellowship is complete. God has created man for fellowship with him. And now he has created the woman so that the man and woman can share fellowship with one another and with all generations who will follow them. God is with his people They, in turn, are with one another. It's perfect fellowship. It's what we were made for. I think I said to you at the start of this series how much I've enjoyed taking a bit of time to read and to study these opening chapters of Genesis. I've I've just had a wonderful insight here into the, the astonishing grace of God, how he makes a beautiful world. He gives it to us as our home. He gives us each other that we might have fellowship one with each other. And he gives us himself, his own image, that we might have fellowship with him. That's how God made us. That's what God intended us for. Anything else is entirely second best. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength 
and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we were created for. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you as those who live in a world that has lost its way. Lord, a world where people often feel alone, where people have lost all sense of dignity and self-worth. And Lord, we thank you that you have shown us in your word the truth of this world, that it's a place that you've made in love, that we are people whom you have made in love. And Lord, that you call us to be yours and to give ourselves to one another. Lord, would you begin to expand our horizons? Would you pour your spirit once more into us, into our sometimes broken and often shriveled lives? Would you fill us with your love and make us people who, whose hearts are set on you and who give our all to loving one another? Amen.